this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So this next interview is a little different. It's with Manny Fernandez. He built up HomeBuyingCenter.com into a successful company, sold it in 2007. When I say it's a little different, you'll notice in hearing Manny's voice, he's pretty hesitant at times in the interview. And I think that's because he had a a non-disclosure agreement signed with the buyer that really forced him into not revealing a lot of details. But we nibbled around at the edges of some of the specifics around the company. I think if you read between the lines, you're going to hear a very revealing story about sort of the process of going through playing one buyer off the next. Again, I think you'll you'll have to be creative in the way you think about it and listen to the interview, but there are nuggets within this interview. Uh, if you listen to the, you know, the tone of Manny's comments, what he says, what he doesn't say, um, you know, things along the way, I think you'll, you'll be able to piece together uh, some really uh, good information. Uh, Manny, if you don't know, is just a tremendous entrepreneur. Uh, the day after, or a couple days after this interview was recorded, he was on the way to the White House um, to kind of schmooze with, uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, some pretty significant people uh, celebrating some of the members of the San Francisco business community. Uh, he is a star on CNBC's Make Me a Millionaire Inventor. So uh, uh, a, a, a new sort of television uh, personality. He's also the founder and a, and a kind of very cool company, dreamfunded.com, which I you know, certainly suggest you check out. Uh, so lots of interesting stuff here with my next guest, Manny Fernandez. Manny Fernandez, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me, John. I'm excited. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about this company, HomeBuyingCenter.com. Forgive me. I don't know much about it. So tell, tell me about it as, as I'm a layman. Uh, explain the, what you guys did. You know, I had a real estate fund and I was buying properties and I wanted to create a way where people could uh, reach out to me if they wanted to sell their house. And as the market was changing, I knew that there's maybe a boom of people that may want to sell and they want to sell quickly. So I created a way where, where people were, can go online and, and sell their house, and at the same time looking for a house to buy. And what I found is that it was kind of a luck of the market because there are many people who are approaching us to sell, in many cases 40 an hour, and, but people didn't have equity. So it eventually became a new type of online brokerage that we would uh, refer the properties to our network in Century 21, which were all across the country. And it, and it really just took off at one point. You, you know, um, you lost me a little bit. Now, treat me like a 12-year-old a, a trying to explain this business model. So, so I'm familiar with, uh, you know, I've got a, like a local real estate agent. When I want to sell my home, I call my real estate agent. She comes to my house and she looks at how many square feet it is, how many bedrooms. And she says, you know, I think you should list it for X. And then she lists it. And then we've got, you know, people that come over. So how was your model different? How was your model different? 
Well, how our model was different was specifically that we were a fund set up to buy properties. And so when the market was changing, people want to get out quicker than having it listed on the market with an agent. So they saw a simple solution where they could go online and look for a person that would buy their house. In many cases, the equity at the time wasn't, wasn't enough for us to acquire their property. And so we had to go through a short sale process with the bank because they owed more than a house was worth. And then, so we would then take the lead and uh, provide it to a broker and a broker would provide it to their agent. And once the transaction was completed where they found a new home buyer, in many cases, the home buyer came through us, we, provide, we earned a revenue of 25% of the selling side of the property and a small percentage of the buying side at some times. So it was a new type of online brokerage. When you say 25% of the selling side, do you mean 25% of the commission the agent would earn? Correct. 25% of the commission the agent would earn. Yes, right. Okay. So if I'm a homeowner and I'm in trouble, I can put my house up on homebuyingcenter.com. It wasn't putting up. They would request a sale. Mm -hmm. And then we will have a team that would have a conversation with them and figure out what the best fit for them was. In many cases, they didn't have an agent. So we were a broker and then we was able to connect them with a broker in their area anywhere in the country. And then the broker that's in the country would connect them to the agent, which will go out and meet with the homeowner, have a conversation, and then they will list their property. And then we will uh, do our best to uh, keep doing that over and over and over. And so in a way, I don't want to belittle the business, but it, it almost sounds like it was a almost like a lead generation company in a way for a real estate firm. Am I getting it right? Well, lead generation would be specific if you're selling the lead. We didn't sell the lead. We're, we were, had a brokerage, and so we earned a percentage upon commission, upon closing, mm. which is a lot greater, and we had to have the financial capacity to wait because in some cases, it took several months to get the transaction completed. Where a lead, you could just sell a lead for 35 bucks. No one really cared. So we hand-carried many of the uh, people to the brokerages that would uh, eventually turn into business. How did you f stumble into this business? It sounds like an, a, a really interesting kind of niche. It was just by listening to the people. I think one time, as I mentioned, it was set up for to get leads to people that want to sell and people that want to buy. And then it turned into a whole stream of new people coming in, which we never expected. And then we found that the agents desperately wanted this. We, we built a relationship with Century 21 corporate office and they did uh, their best to connect us to people. And uh, we just found that at one point it was really challenging to find good listings and we just happened to have a very big stream of it during a time where no one really knew what short sales were. And then one that took off, we had a, we just had too many to even handle. And what time, like this is circa 2005, six, is that the kind of time frame you're talking about? Yeah, it started in uh, late 2005. It was starting to pick up and then really had a big boom in 2007. See, I was in Miami in, in around that time. I remember getting my hair cut. I was at a hotel. I needed a haircut. I went to this guy who I didn't know. Obviously, I don't live in Miami. And I remember talking to this guy cutting my hair. And we were talking about the real estate market in Miami. And he was saying, yeah, you know, um, I really got to get I really got to get out of this this condo I'm in right now and I was like, "Oh yeah, really tell me a little bit more about that." And he's like, "Why do you want to sell?" And he's like, "Well, I mean, I, my my equity's almost at 5% by now, so I I really got to flip this thing and get a new one." 
And at, at that point, I was like, "Are you kidding me? All you've got in your condo is 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 five percent." It was it was mind blowing for me. In Canada, you need twenty five percent to buy a home. So the idea that someone would have as little as five percent in their home was just like mind blowing for me. But I remember it was. I always remember that conversation because it was indicative of me of just what was going on in the U.S. real estate market. I mean, people were were buying way more home than than they probably should have. They were flipping. They were speculating. Was that kind of, did you see that in, you must've seen that in like firsthand. You know, we, we had a lot of data from people all around the country, but it, people were selling for different reasons. They wanted to move up to another home. They wanted to downsize their empty nesters where people were, you know, the kids went to college and now they wanted something smaller. So it was a broad spectrum of people that wanted to be able to sell their house and do something else with it. And so give us a sense of where you were at in in the business when you decided to sell? I mean, what was your revenue like? That kind of stuff. How many employees did you have? That just give us a proxy for sort of how big you were as a company. We're kind of small. We had um, twenty two employees. The revenues uh, were over five million dollars a year, and uh, it was just I was considered like snapping a rubber band in terms of how fast we grew. It was just based on our market demand. So when you so five million in revenue, so how so sort of year over year, if you if you took say you know two thousand five to two thousand six to two thousand seven, like what would that revenue line have looked like? Well, it was funny because the first year was was starting off kind of slow. We had about six hundred k in sales, and the next year it uh, it doubled, and then the last year really just uh, the first quarter when I sold it, it was producing five million with twenty two employees. Yep. Got it. And so maybe talk a little bit about that sale. So what was there, a, was there a sort of an event that took place that made you think, oh, maybe I'll sell this? Were you approached? Did you, you know, what was the trigger, if you will? I just really couldn't handle the growth, quite honestly. I mean, I, it, it grew bigger than I could expect it to. And to ha be able to organize everything and keep things um, organized was really challenging, you know, making sure that when um, agents would sell their house and that we would make sure that we get the commission and, and keeping in track with people. So that was an issue that we're running into. So agents weren't necessarily being forthcoming, paying their 25%, your 25% of the, you had to chase them? No, we worked directly with the brokers. It was just hard to manage the growth. Mm. That's a simple, you know, I was a lot younger at the time and it was just challenging to handle it. That It just outgrew me. And so how, how did that manifest itself? I mean, it, it was it you're working 12, 14 hours a day or, or was, were there things getting dropped? Like, how did you know you were reaching a point where it was growing faster than you could accommodate? You could, you could handle. Yeah, that's what was it. I started in the morning. I would end at night and I still would have a list of things to complete. It was just challenging. But why sell? I mean, there, it seems, you know, lots of people would, would run into the same problem and then choose a different outcome. What, why, why did selling feel like the right outcome for you? We received an offer that um, was really nice where I thought that the company could grow and, you know, the, and the employees can still be around and I could take some money off the table and work out quite well. It, it was a, during a time that people wanted this and they thought that this was going to be the future of real estate. So I thought this was a good timing to do it. And plus with the growth, I knew I couldn't handle more growth. So I thought it would be off in the better hands of a, of a brilliant organizer. And so how did you, you mentioned you got an offer. So maybe, because a lot of people listen to this and going, you know, that's what I want. I want somebody to notice me. I want, 
you know, I don't want to have to go shop my business, grovel for, you know, to sell it. I, I want someone to proactively say, hey, I want to buy your business. Is that what happened in your case? Or were you sort of cultivating a relationship with someone? Yeah. Well, maybe no, talk it, us through it, that. It was definitely a relationship. We, at one firm, we put a lot of uh, listings in their hands. And it, the, the person that ran the business and owned it really took notice when he was starting to get hundreds of listings coming in. It was like, how is this even possible? And so we said, hey, you know, for some reason, we're getting a lot of traffic here and get a lot of volume in this area. And uh, we just built a good relationship and things worked out quite well. And so the relationship with, with, was with one of these Century 21 um, offices, right? Well, it, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Select Group Real Estate in Citrus Heights, Northern California. They had 500 agents there, and they had agents all across uh, Northern California, and many of the listings were coming through that would uh, help increase inventory throughout the many of the agents and offices there. So this is the the, the agency or the brokerage that you're you're sending a lot of these uh, these deals to. Right, and, and the owner kind of took notice and said, "Oh my God, what are you what are you doing here? This is great." Yeah, yeah. And did he approach you then? He did. I think people would be curious to know, you know, what how you react to something like that when when you get a sort of an unsolicited uh, shot over the bow from a natural acquirer. I mean, let's be honest. He he, you know, anyone looking at that at, at thirty thousand feet would say, "Yeah, of course that guy would want to buy HomeBuyingCenter dot com." Uh, did, did you know that at the time when he sort of approached you, was it obvious that he, that his, that his interest was in acquiring you? Yeah, I couldn't believe what he was saying. And is that, it's not that he didn't have credibility. I just couldn't believe the words and, and the numbers did he use, you know, I think this would be a good for our organization. And, uh, I really, that's what I really remember him saying. And he had other, some other things that he said, and it was, just hard for me to believe in a short period of time someone would want to buy this. And I was excited, but yet challenging because I wanted to make this into a, you know, like a next Trulia, a new type of Trulia or a new type of Zillow. Um, so I was having mixed emotions behind it. And, um, you know, it, it took about six months going back and forth and it worked out quite well. So talk a, a little bit about that. So so he approached you saying, hey, we want to buy the business. Did he throw a number out at you right away? He didn't. He didn't. How, he, how did that didn't. go down? Did he ask you, what did you want for the business? He, he wanted to know what will it be fair if I wanted to leave and let him grow the business or take advantage of all the, what we built. And I don't want to give away his negotiating strategy, but it was a soft sell. He was sharp. Got it. So, so he was, um, you know, he was trying to fish around for a number in your case. And did you give him a number or a range? Everybody wants to know that because I, I know when I talk to entrepreneurs, um, you know, they, they'll tell me like, how do I answer that question? Cause almost every acquirer will say, Hey, you know, like this business looks great. What, you know, what do you want for it? Um, how do you, how do you sort of answer that question? I mean, do you give him a number? Do you give him a range? Do you just ignore it? Like what, what's the best I, way to answer it? I acted like, uh, many of the women in my life that weren't interested, I just played hard to get and uh, show that there's other people that are interested as well. And so you didn't give them a number? No, I didn't. I just talked about the great future value and tried to have him come up with a number. And then eventually he did. And we went back and forth. And 
I thought about what this could mean for my life and um, some of the early people part of the company. And it was a decision that I knew I couldn't get caught up in ego where I was successful in real estate and selling at the right time. And if I, my pride was in it, I probably would have sell at the wrong time and I wouldn't be here talking to you today. And so I remembered, you know, sometimes it's better off to logically look at the situation versus getting caught up in the greed and the emotion that we're going to make this to a super home run. It's a, such a good point. Um, cause a lot, again, I, I think a lot of people wonder like, should I, should I, should I be happy with the single, you know, like, do I, do I, do I wrap that up in a bow and say, I was successful. I got on base to use a baseball analogy. Um, and I'm going to go build the next company into a home run or, what do I, I shun the, the, the offer and try to build the next, as you say, um, Zillow or Google or whatever, whatever the aspiration of the entrepreneur is. But in your case, you said you didn't want to get your ego to get in the way. Were there, were there other, uh, you mentioned people that were helping the business in the early days. Were there other investors in the business at the time? Other people with capital or equity in the table? No, actually I was the only one. I, I came from a successful real estate investment background, so I poured a lot of my money into it, and I didn't need to uh, raise money from an investor. So it was a it was a unique situation because it was really a bootstrap startup. So you were uh, going back and forth. Let's talk about the that six month window when when you were going back and forth. I mean, were there other people at the table? considering buying the business? Did you, did you cultivate other offers on the side? Yeah, we had two, but we had a very big, strong one, which was a public company that had a series of newspaper companies out of a big state in, in, uh, in the United States. And it was a very tr attractive offer, but yet I didn't want to go and work for that company. I wanted more of a buyout with a little advisory, but not being a employee of another company. So in hindsight, maybe I should have took their money because it would have gave me a stronger bio. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's about getting the most money. I don't think a bio really matters. I heard the word buy out, like B-U-Y-O-U-T. Did you say bio, B-I-O? I was a, my company that created was acquired by this major media company. That's bio. I see. And you know, that that's attractive, but yet at the end of the day, other things are a little bit more attractive living comfortably. So was the major media companies offer, uh, more cash up front? I, I can't, I can't talk about the terms. Okay, no problem. But so you had this other offer on the table. How did you get the other offer? Was was there was, was that another inbound, or did you have sort of an intermediary, like an M and A professional, sort of uh, representing you at this time? I had an advisor that connected me. I guess he would be considered an M and A person, but he wasn't in the business of doing it. He just thought I should check with them to see if there was an opportunity to uh, create a new stream of revenue for the real estate newspaper business. Got it. And of course, they're losing a lot of that business to the online. So they were they were keen to, I'm assuming, you know, do do something to recover some of that revenue. Right. Interesting. So you're you've got two guys at the table playing one off the other. Did you did you ever get to a point where you felt like maybe maybe where you were gonna push one away because they they knew that there was another person at the table? Did did you ever feel like 
you were you know being <laughs> unfaithful to, to one over the other did, did that or were you fully transparent saying look there's two guys at the table you guys figure out who's you know you know what I think what really happened was that I was transparent to both and since I had someone competing it made both sides come up mm-hmm. like how, how much would they have come up like on percentage terms would they have come up I mean, again, just broad strokes, would they have doubled their offer or when they found out there was other people at the table? I think, you know, the analogy of real estate, if you buy from a person that uh, doesn't have a market, you get a good deal. But if you put it on the MLS where there's multiple buyers, you get the best deal. I think that's a great analogy for this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have competition on both ends. And uh, I think one one person sometimes doesn't make logical decisions. You know, that it's about emotion. They want to beat the other guy. They want it. So this this all went on over a six-month period. How was that emotionally for you? It was hard because I was excited and I still had to get to work, right? <laughs> so I keep checking in my emails and try to uh, make sure that uh, I'm on top of things. The person's supposed to get back to me. So it was, I was on edge. It was, it was, in, it was an exciting but yet a at the end of my seat, because I wasn't sure if it even was going to happen. What a luxurious position to be in with two two sort of serious offers. Are they like in the form of a letter of intent, like a, a formal document with their you know their logo on it, saying we want to buy your business for X amount of money? Have they gone to that yeah. stage? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so you're looking at these, and then at one point, did you have to sign a letter of intent with a no shop clause, which which said, look, I'm not going to shop it to the other guy anymore. You guys can do your due diligence. I had signed a non-disclosure agreement that I can say that they're in a market to buy this or any explain any of the deal terms, but I didn't have a non-compete. I wouldn't sign that. Say that again. They, they were asking for a I, non-compete? I did not sign that. One person did ask for that, but I said I would not do that because that would hinder my ability to negotiate with any other interested parties. Interesting. Uh, so they were looking for not only a non-disclosure, but a non-compete was the non-compete. Um, if, if they were, if you were to, to consummate a deal that you wouldn't compete with them after the fact, or was it, was it contingent on, or are part of signing the, the NDA? Yeah. Honestly, I don't have all the details with such a few years ago. And I just remember kicking it out the moment I heard it. So I didn't hear the full details. I said, I wouldn't do that. Got it. You're working with a lawyer of some sort at this point, I'm assuming? I handled most of the um, transaction initially, and then I did close it with the law firm. Yeah, yeah. What were some of the deal points that came up during diligence that you were surprised at? Um, in terms of cash payout and advisory role and you know how one can get the money over a certain period of time with potential bonuses, um, I thought that was interesting. Uh, for some reason, I had this fantasy that someone was going to buy me out and provide me one big check. You know, that didn't happen. How did how did it get structured? I mean, did you get was it sort of an earn out where you make it over a period of time? I think it may be. I can't go into the term details, but I can say that you know, uh, in some cases, uh, people get it up front, and then they become an advisor or they have some role where they get a payout for a certain period of time and with the bonuses of however the business may perform. And so what advice would you give another entrepreneur? Let's say it's an EO member that, you know, is part of your forum group who says, you know, I'm looking at this offer. 
you know, there's, they're paying me a chunk of money up front and then the rest of it's sort of on contingency. What advice would you give another entrepreneur looking at an offer like that? Do it best to get all the money up front, not on contingency. You know, I, I, there's an entrepreneur that uh, recently sold his company through Facebook. And I can't say the company's name, but I was an investor in it. And I was excited to hear that Facebook is going to acquire the company. But seeing the deal terms, I can tell you they um, favor the employee and, I'm sorry, the entrepreneur. And they may not be favoring the investor, at least in this situation where the entrepreneur made the most, but the investors probably made one time, two times their return on their money. They didn't make too much. So they had it uniquely structured to benefit the entrepreneur. And um, so I would suggest anytime they're working with something, get as much as up front because you don't know what, how the market could change. And in this case, market changes. And And what would your advice be? to an entrepreneur to make that case? Because of course, as a buyer, you, you want to pay as little upfront and, and the most on kind of contingent on future performance. As a seller, you want the opposite. So if you're coaching this, this fellow entrepreneur who's looking to you for advice, I mean, what, how would you, like, what sorts of things would you do in that case to maximize your upfront payment and minimize the proportion in the, uh, at risk? Well, the best thing is to be in a situation you don't need to sell. That's you. Then you're negotiating at a pace of strength. You're not just negotiating because the business is going to close in 30 days. So being in a position of strength is important. Then, therefore, you have more negotiating power. You can you can take as long as you want. So every situation is different. My example won't be the example of many people that may be paying attention. How how much did your negotiation position deteriorate? over the six month negotiation due to your emotional buy-in to getting a deal done? I told myself it wasn't going to get done. I don't really care if it got done or not, but in the back of my mind, obviously I wanted it done. So I didn't fall in love with it. But it's tough, right? I mean, you're still looking at your email every day saying, you know, when do they give me in touch, et cetera. A lot of self-talk throughout that process. You know, you have to have to control your emotions and don't tell anyone because they'll kind of inflate your emotions. They're an outsider. They'll tell you, oh, you do this, why and they, or they'll see the money. So I just try to keep it quiet and, and uh, not get anyone outside of me, my network to uh, influence me by any, by any means. Yeah, because, you know, it's one thing to go through these processes in, um, you know, in theory, in a textbook fashion. Of course, most people listening to this will, will nod their heads when you say, uh, you know, you know, negotiate from a position of strength, don't feel like you have to sell. There's one, I mean, that's textbook stuff, right? But there's a very different side of this. When, you've, when someone's flashed a number at you and and you're now going through the you know the months and months of back and forth over over the various little details it is very tough to keep that um that's dispassionate view of getting a deal done it sounds like in your case you, you did your best intellectually but there was still part of you that that knew that, that emotionally was sort of married to getting a deal done at some point act like you don't really care but yet um, you got to make sure that, you know, you, you don't need to sell. So if you had it to do all, all over again, Manny, what might you do differently? You know, I think when I was young and I had, you know, sold it, I think that maybe I was a little 
I think that I didn't realize that other people weren't lucky or as talented. So maybe throughout the years, I wasn't nice to everyone. And it doesn't mean you need to be friends, but I think that's maybe some cases I was a little bit too quick or maybe I was a little bit too rude. Uh, maybe I was a little bit too stressed and I didn't know how to handle my stress. So sometimes it would snap. So now a little bit older, I, I'm, I'm a lot better in life because I've had that experience. What about in the sale of Home Buying Center? As you look about at that sort of, that period in your life, what might you do differently about the actual transaction itself? You know, I always ask myself, and this beats me up sometimes, what if I would have countered with X amount and acted like I didn't buy it? You know, I wouldn't, you know, buy into that price. And could I have received more? Could I have pushed? Could I have brought in another buyer? Could I have tried to work with the M&A company that could have pumped up the value? Should I have done a press conference? I ask myself that a lot. And I think, you know, I just got to realize I made a deal and that was it. And I, I think that I, I just can't keep wrestling. What if this? What if that? Because your mind can play with you all the time. Could I have doubled the sales? Could I, what if would I have done if I would have done this? You know, your mind is always wrestling. And, and I think, I, you know, I could always go back and I could have tried this and that. But is then every time you change something, the outcome changes. So there's nothing can be done. I remember uh, there was a, a lieutenant governor at the time, Cruz Bustamante. And I remember he was in a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce event calling me the young Mark Cuban. Uh, and this was when before Mark Cuban was on a TV show. This was just because he said, he, you know, he sold his company to Yahoo and I guess no one really sold an internet company in the in our circles that I was in. So it was really flattering. But I always remember, what if I would have asked for more and what if I could have done this and done differently? But I think at the end of the day, we do what we do. We just learn from it. Manny, it's 2016. The deal was done in 2007. So, so fully nine years ago, you've gone on to have a tremendous success in many other areas. Do you still think about that today? Absolutely. I have to wrestle my mind and ensure that I made the right decision and I just got to take it out of my mind and just focus on something in the future. Because every time I'm dealing with entrepreneurs, funding companies here in Silicon Valley or using dream funding to help um, entrepreneurs get funded. And every once in a while, there's an exit that takes place. And when that comes up, boy, I start thinking about my first exit. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Many uh, people that are looking to find access to private capital, but yet don't have the networks, they're not in the right families, they don't know how to pitch a venture capitalist or an angel. I wanted a, a simpler way where they can raise money, but it's the business behind it where we make a little money when they raise as well as equity in the company. So what Dream Funded is, it allows everyday people to invest at the same time, allows entrepreneur to raise their first million dollars without going to a bank, but through people in their community plus our over 130,000 plus uh, investors that are on our platform. And um, we're the first one in Silicon Valley to get it approved through the government. And this is called uh, equity crowdfunding. It's really known as Title III of the Jobs Act without, for those lawyers that may be paying attention. <laughs> and I understand you're going to the White House next week. How did you get that invitation and what, 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 what is that for? Oh, they, I guess, got invited me because I'm an influential member here of San Francisco community. And um, I'm excited to be invited and just... I guess um, some people may think, oh, here's a guy with the last name, Hispanic, uh, Fernandez. You know, it's a de de detriment. I think it's an advantage because it puts me in a league of my own. And so I'm looking forward to, to create a new network of people there uh, at the White House. I bet. And where do people best reach out to you, Manny? I mean, do you want to send them to Dream Funded or do you, do you, do you, what's the best way to reach you? 
Well, people can follow me on Twitter at Manny Fernandez. It accepts direct messages there. Um, if you're a genius or you're not a genius, you can realize my first name at dreamfunded.com is the way to reach me. Um, LinkedIn, you know, it's a one way or Facebook. I'm, I'm pretty out there on social media. I do my best to try to give advice and, and open my network to other people that mean a little help because, you know, many, many unsung heroes helped me move up in the world and I'm, I'm here to help others. Manny Fernandez, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, John. Uh, remember, I want to let people know uh, next Thursday I'm on a TV show as an investor. It's um, CNBC, Make Me a Millionaire Inventor. And I'm proud to be an investor on that show. Fantastic. It's called Make Me a Millionaire Inventor. Uh, CNBC, is that right? Yes. It starts October 6, uh, 10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We'll look out for that. And we'll put that in the show notes. Go to buildcell.com slash blog and you'll get that. You can see... Uh, all of Manny's companies and Dream Funded and lots of other stuff at uh, in the show notes, builttocell.com slash blog. Manny, thanks for joining us. Pleasure's all mine, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttocell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L -L